Greetings, this is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at uh, Acts uh, chapter 26, beginning with verse 1 through verse 23. In our last session, Paul had faced his accusers again in Caesarea, and the trial being brought by Festus, the new procurator in that region. Shortly after that trial, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice visited him. While Festus was pleased with this state visit, he did have a problem that he wanted to discuss with King Agrippa. At trial, Paul had appealed to Caesar for the final verdict on his case. However, just as the Pharisees had earlier determined, there was no crime, no law of Rome, that Paul had broken that was deserving of incarceration or death. However, because Paul had made his appeal to Caesar, Festus had a legal obligation to send him to Rome and to Caesar's court. The usual procedure for this would be to have a letter describing the charges that the defendant had been convicted of, but Paul had not yet been convicted, and Festus was having great difficulty in deciding how best to word that letter to Caesar. So with the coming of King Agrippa, who was known to have great knowledge in the law of Moses and Jewish civil law, he was hoping that Agrippa could assist him with this. As we begin our Bible reading for today's lesson, I would like to begin with chapter 25, verse 23, through chapter 6, verse 3, to help provide us a little bit of context for what will transpire. So let us begin. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with, with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with you, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have noted uh, I have nothing uh, certain to write to my Lord concerning him, and therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered him for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions with, with, which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Now, in Paul's trial, before Felix and Festus, his accusers had come to bring their charges face to face. As we've been discussing, the charges were personal attacks on the character of Paul, false, treasonous accusations against Rome, and assumed charges regarding his conduct 
while on temple property. Of course, their main point of contention is that Paul preached that Jesus had died and then rose from the dead. The doctrine of resurrection and that Christ's resurrection becomes the confirmation that Jesus is the promised Messiah that Moses and the prophets had foretold. But on this occasion, while there were other powerful men of state and city dignitaries and others who were there at the command of Festus, his accusers were absent. And Paul stood alone before King Agrippa and all those who had come to hear his defense. What a wonderful opportunity this was for Paul. King Agrippa was known to be very knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures. Temple worship and the priesthood and the culture of the Jews. This knowledge also made him a good listener to Paul's defense. Paul was aware of this because he surmised that if there was a chance a chance for a fair hearing, this might be that opportunity. However, Paul's primary concern on that day, I believe, was his desire that they would know Jesus and be saved. So while it is true that he stood before this room filled with dignitaries as a prisoner in chains, what he knew is that they sat before him in bondage to sin and death. And he was the only one who could give them the life-saving gospel message of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So while this may have been Paul's fifth trial on the same charges, from heaven's perspective, was, this was Paul's fifth opportunity to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with people who otherwise would not have heard it. God was giving King Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, and all those listening an opportunity for forgiveness of sin and everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It was up to them how they would respond. Well, let us continue with Paul's defense, which is actually his personal testimony. Now remember what we have previously discussed about the components of a testimony. It, it should include three key elements, our life before Jesus, how we encountered Jesus, and our life now in Christ. You will see all three of these areas covered in Paul's defense. Let us now turn to Acts chapter 26, beginning with verse 4. Paul says this, My manner of life from my youth, which was sent from the beginning upon my, among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews knew. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I 
cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Because Paul's accusers came from the Jews and primarily the members of the Sanhedrin, Paul began by explaining his own background as a Pharisee. Once again, I would like to remind us of Paul's own description of, of himself in his letter to the Philippian church. Listen to what he had to say about himself before he became a Christian. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 4. Though I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In fact, Paul's father was also a Pharisee. From Paul's earliest days, he knew about God and was taught to honor, love, and obey the law of God. Having a brilliant mind, Paul was trained under the leading rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. Paul lived and studied in Jerusalem during his formative years, and because of his great intelligence, he quickly distinguished himself as a great scholar and a natural leader among his peers. When the time came, he became a Pharisee, and most probably had access to the Sanhedrin whenever they gathered. He was the best kind of Pharisee. He followed the law perfectly. And there was not a flaw in him religiously unless we consider the pride he had in himself in being this excellent Pharisee and prominent Jew. Paul, in his defense, is quick to point out that many of the men who had originally accused him and those who had come to bring their charges against him knew all about this. Because before Paul was saved, he was counted as one of them. Do you remember back in the early days, soon after the day of Pentecost, when persecution was just beginning to come against the church? One of the key leaders, Stephen, was arrested and brought to trial. Stephen was very direct in his message on that day, and what he had to say so enraged the members of the Sanhedrin and the other Jews that they immediately sought his death. Let's read a little bit from that account, Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they, they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And on that day, Stephen died as Paul, Paul watched. Yes, Paul. Saul, as he was known then, was there. And so much so that he stood there giving approval to all that was taking place. And from that day, great persecution broke out against the church, scattering the new Christians to regions throughout the Roman Empire. As terrible as this was, God used it to bring the gospel message to all who the Christian believers would come to live among. And Paul would be one of the key people who led this persecution against the church in his great zeal for the law. But now Paul pauses in his personal description to make the following statement in verse 6. Paul said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. You will notice how Paul is carefully connecting himself to the same beliefs and scriptures that his accusers hold to and that King Agrippa also believed. In this verse, he, Paul speaks of the hope of the promise. What is this hope, this promise? It is the doctrine of resurrection. I like the observation that the Life Application uh, Bible Commentary makes here. Paul used the rich heritage of God's promise to his and Agrippa's common ancestors as a connection to Agrippa and to the Jews, the 12 tribes of Israel. They all shared the same hope, that God would keep the promise he had made to his people. A hope that was inextricably tied up with the resurrection of the dead. If any Jew from Abraham forward had any hope for the fulfillment of any promise that God had made, it must be tied to a belief that he would be resurrected in some form at some time where the whole concept of God's promises would be ludicrous. That was Paul's point. The absurdity was that Paul was being attacked for holding to this hope that was shared so adamantly by his Jewish brothers. And you see, to Paul, this was a crucial doctrine, for there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, and Paul had no gospel to preach. This is what Paul wrote about at great length in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read just a few key verses from that chapter. Verse 3 and 4, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Jumping down to verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes. And we are found false witnesses to God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we, we are of all men the most pitiable, but, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And so it was because of his convictions about the resurrection and the hope of Israel that Paul was not a prisoner testifying in his own defense. Well, Paul continued his defense, telling them that in those days, before he became a follower of Jesus, he also struggled with the fact that these Christians were telling people everywhere that the Jesus who had been crucified in Jerusalem had risen from the dead. And that incredibly, there were hundreds who were saying that they had seen Jesus alive. This so enraged Paul in those days that he went on a campaign to seek out Christians, to have them beaten in the synagogue, to have them arrested, and even giving his consent to their deaths. His own words are so strong that I would like to read them again. Verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Dr. John Stott gives us a deeper understanding into what Paul was actually describing here. He writes, Saul, the Pharisee, was convinced that it was his solemn duty to oppose the name and the claims of Jesus of Nazareth as those of an imposter. Moreover, he had the courage of his convictions. He began his persecuting pogrom in Jerusalem, armed with authority from the chief priests, he not only imprisoned many disciples of Jesus, but even when they were sentenced to death, he cast his vote against them. He searched the synagogues for Christians in order to bring them to punishment. And the synagogue punishment of whipping will be met here. He tried by force to make that, them blaspheme, and in his obsession, he pursued them even to foreign cities. These were details that Paul never forgot. And it is why Paul was so zealous to tell everyone about what Jesus had done for him. Because he knew, by his own admission, that he was the worst of sinners that deserved death. But Jesus showed him mercy and gave him life. Well, let's continue with Paul's account, beginning with verse 12. While thus occupied, uh, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and, com and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive for themselves a forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Well, as we read, Paul next begins to tell them about his encounter with Jesus while on his way to Damascus to imprison yet more Christians when Jesus shined his light and revealed himself to Paul. With the words of Jesus, Paul suddenly realized that Jesus is truly alive and that the promises in Scripture had been fulfilled in him. In this portion of Paul's personal testimony, he shares something that is found only here in the book of Acts in reference to when Jesus spoke to him. And he makes three key points. Number one, Jesus identified himself with the sufferings of the church. Like Jesus had said to his disciples, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me. Number two, Jesus commissioned Paul into the ministry. You notice it was Jesus, his words, that commissioned Paul into the ministry to minister and to be a witness of Jesus just like he wrote just like Paul wrote in the opening verse in Galatians where he says Paul an apostle not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead Paul claims that his authority as an apostle because Jesus himself bestowed that upon him and number three, that Jesus would deliver him out of the hands of both Jews and Gentiles. You will notice that Jesus did not say that he would prevent him from troubles, but only that Jesus would deliver Paul from the various difficult situation that he would often find himself in. Once again, there Paul stood in chains with a confidence in the renewed promise that not only will Jesus deliver him from those who were trying to kill him, but that Jesus would send him to Rome to share the gospel with the people at the heart of the Roman Empire. This message that Paul was to share is found in verse 18, 
when he says to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Warren Wearsby adds the following insight. Acts 26.18 describes both the spiritual condition of the lost and the gracious provision of Christ for those who will believe. You will find parallels in Isaiah 35.5, Isaiah 42.6 and verses following, and Isaiah 61.1. The lost sinner is like a blind prisoner in a dark dungeon. And only Christ can open his eyes and give him light and freedom. But even after he is set free, what about his court record and his guilt? The Lord forgives his sins and wipes the record clean. He then takes him into his own family as his own child and shares his inheritance with him. What must the sinner do? He must trust Jesus Christ. Paul had to lose his religion in order to gain salvation. And that is what we all must do. Because we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. There's no work great enough that can earn our salvation. And there's no need to add works to the perfect finished work of Jesus that he alone accomplished on the cross. It was his blood that was shed. And it is his blood that cleanses us from all our sins and unrighteousness. So Paul continued. And as he spoke, he, he said that he obeyed the command of the Lord and became a believer in and a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. His message was simple, and it is, it is the same message that Jesus preached during his earthly ministry, and it is this, that everyone needs to repent of their sin, turn to God, and prove their repentance through good works. Now, once again, let's remember, our works do not save us. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. Our salvation is the free gift of God through the blood that was shed on the cross and affirmed by the empty tomb. But our repentance, our change of heart toward God should be evidenced in how we live our lives from that day forward. There should be a change. There should be a transformation. It is at this point that Paul begins to draw his conclusion and that is this, the truth of who Jesus is, what he did, and that he rose from the dead and is alive forevermore, even more specifically that Paul affirmed the Old Testament doctrine of the resurrection of the dead with Jesus being the first one to experience eternal resurrection. It was for these things, these teachings, these beliefs, that he was on trial. Paul then gave God the glory for the fact that even after all these years and the many and various attempts that men had used to try to silence him and kill him, he was still alive, standing before them on that day. This was the power and the grace of God at work.
Hall again affirmed that what he was teaching and believing is the very things that the Old Testament scriptures taught, namely that Jesus would suffer and die, and that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he, through his servants like Paul, would pro provide to both Jews and Gentiles alike the light of truth, that light of salvation. Well, we are once again out of time. So we will resume Paul's trial in our next session together. But until then, I want to read to you a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that I feel apply here. Listen to the strong conviction that Paul had in his calling and how he fulfilled that calling. And notice the perspective that Paul had on his sufferings as he obeyed the Lord in faithful ministry. Because this should be our attitude too. We should have that same confidence, that same conviction. Because the one who called Paul has also called us, you and me. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the resources of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and his constant abiding presence are also the same resources available to us today, if we are willing. Yes. Paul has set for us an example, an excellent example to follow, even as he followed the perfect example of Jesus Christ our Lord. So let us consider 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach Christ, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested 
in our mortal flesh. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And Heavenly Father, we know that your servant, the Apostle Paul, always kept that eternal perspective before him through all the days of his ministry, O Lord. He always kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, who is always aware of the grace that you had poured out into his life. In fact, he said in one of his writings that it was your love that compelled him. And it was not just your love for him, but the love, your love that you placed in his heart for every person that he encountered, Lord. And he was willing to do whatever it took to tell them about Jesus because he knew Jesus would transform their lives if they would just let him. You are so good and gracious, O God. Truly you are a God who is rich in mercy and abundant in loving kindness. And we give you thanks for who you are. And we give you thanks for what you have done. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the promise of everlasting life. And I pray, O oh God, that even as the Apostle Paul said that your love compelled him, we would say in our hearts, your love compels us to be your witnesses, to live our lives for your glory, to never falter, and never fail. So empower us, O oh God, with your Holy Spirit and speak to us through your word. Purify us from sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Transform our lives, Lord. Make us your servants, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're finding these messages helpful and encouraging or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all just one word under lowercase letters, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So until next time, my friend, remember this promise from Colossians 4.19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. May God continue to bless you, my friend, and may you continue to faithfully serve him. Amen. <laughs>